Nicaragua has been crippled with political strife since massive protests erupted in April, allegedly over the government's proposal to cut pensions. Since then, violent clashes have paralyzed the country. More than 300 people have been killed. Thousands more have been injured. Strikingly similar to the unrest in Venezuela, the only narrative that you hear on corporate media is that Ortega is a dangerous tyrant who's gunning down peaceful protesters in the street. Now, to talk about the other side of the story that you're not going to hear on Western press, I'm joined now by Max Blumenthal, an award-winning journalist, author, who spent several weeks in the country reporting on the protests, and Camilo Mejia, a Nicaraguan American who's the son of a famous Sandinista singer, Carlos Mejia Godoy. He's also an Iraq war resistor who served nine months in prison for refusing to deploy to Iraq. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Thanks for having us. So, Max, let's start with you. I first want you to talk about what exactly initiated this unrest and how these protests effectively exploded here. I mean, was this really students waging a battle against government pension cuts? Well, I, I think uh, Camilo could speak to the years of preparation that went into uh what we've seen kind of take place in a lot of flashpoints in areas where the U.S. sought regime change. It's kind of the color revolution model. Um, and in this case, it was, um, yes, it was supposedly over pension cuts um, and students were supposedly going out and protesting what was uh, presented as an austerity plan. In reality, um, what the FSLN-led government was introducing was uh, something designed to soften the impact of a plan that was put forward, uh, inspired by the IMF, first of all, and then put forward by COSEP, which is the private business sector, uh, that actually would have privatized health clinics, raised the retirement age, and actually effectively been a form of austerity. Nobody came out and protested that plan. They came out and protested uh, when these reforms were introduced, and the protests reminded me distinctly of when uh, the Ukrainian government, the elected government in 2014 of Viktor Yanukovych rejected a European uh, aso economic association agreement, which led to a violent coup and a color revolution. Um, you know, these are the kind of things you don't think would lead people to come out um, by the tens of thousands and start, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails and attacking police officers. And it really suggests that there had been a lot of advanced preparation. In both cases, you had massive amounts of private media as well as opposition media funded by the U.S. regime change arms of USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy and opposition groups and parties, um, specifically in Nicaragua. And I know Camilo can speak to this uh, in greater detail, the MRS, which has sort of been created to divide the Sandinista movement and has been cultivated extensively by the U.S. Embassy and the State Department, um, really pushing these protests from what was supposed to be one against pension reform into a full-on regime change operation. Um, so it was really telling when... Um, Daniel Ortega and his wife, who's the vice president, Rosario Murillo, initiated a national dialogue. And, uh, and the students, uh, led by this kind of front man, Lester Aleman, who was born in Miami, um, you know, who's sort of the 
kind of face you could market to the West, stands up and comes out and says, no, sir, we're not seeking any reforms anymore. We're seeking your removal and we'll accept nothing less. And that's really, uh, for the next several months, the message of the opposition. They offered no program. They had no clear leadership. They had uh, no real demands, actually, other than that this government, which was elected again and again, just simply stepped down. Uh, but it started over pension reform, protested as austerity when it was actually the counter to an IMF-inspired austerity plan. And Camillo, talk more about this, how, how these original reforms were proposed, not by the Sandinista government, but by the IMF. And were you surprised to see them escalate um, over alleged pension reform? Yeah, definitely. I think Max has given a pretty good account of what happened. Uh, I'd add that um, maybe a little bit of history on this, and that is that when the uh, Sandinistas first took power um, after the overthrow of the Samosa dictatorship back in 79, there was a war that took place. Uh, between the Sandinista government and the Contras, which was a government, I mean, I'm sorry, a U.S. government-funded uh, mercenary um, army. And the Sandinistas, once the, uh, the war ended, implemented a type of retirement system that included former combatants who had fought on the Contra side as well as the Sandinista side. And... The, uh, the, the people who were killed and left families behind uh, were also covered by this pension system that the Sandinistas implemented to, to not only help those combatants, you know, who had fought on the Contra side, but also the families of the fallen Contras as well as the families of the fallen Sandinista um, soldiers, as well as people who were not able to contribute enough into the retirement system, were all basically uh, covered by this reduced pension that the IMF wanted to, to cut. We're talking about 53,000 Nicaraguans, amongst the poorest Nicaraguans, that would have been completely cut out by the uh, IMF reform, which, as Max said, was supported by the COSEP which is the, uh, the business lobby, the powerful business lobby in Nicaragua, and also the entity that called the protest in the first place, not explaining all the things that Max explained, which included, you know, um, the, the slow privatizing of the uh, social security system, as well as, you know, uh, an increase in the uh, retirement age and um, other things. Um, another thing that I'd like to add is that the Sandinista government is a consensus government. So they had already consulted with retirees about the reforms proposed by the IMS and supported by the COSEP and had talked about their counter-reforms, uh, which, were, which were much better for, for the people than um, the original reforms, and they had agreed. So when we first saw the protest, they did not include retirees because retirees had already agreed that the Sandinista counter-reform was better uh, for, you know, um, people in retirement than what had originally been proposed. So these were um, students mostly from private universities led, like Max said, by this 
young man, Lester Aleman, among others, who was born in the U.S. and who had all been through training at private universities in Nicaragua, including a couple of American universities in Nicaragua, um, which basically had been doing ideological work as well as technical uh, capacity building work that basically um, facilitated the manipulation of information through social media and that basically devolved into the kind of conflict that we're seeing today. It does seem like there's a, a disconnect with this pension reform system versus these, you know, allegedly student-led protests that, of course, escalated very quickly into violent insurrections. And also just this odd disconnect between allegedly what the protests were for as well as what was actually going on in the government. I was surprised at first. In principle, I, of course, supported the, the rights of people to assemble and, and protest. Um and I, I really did believe in the beginning that this was a legitimate protest and people were protesting cuts to the pension system and not being really informed about the, well, the whole background behind the, um, the reforms. I never thought that this was part of a coordinated effort by the U.S. through civil society organizations to basically overthrow the government, but that became clear very, very early on in the protest. And Max can tell you more about meeting students in Nicaragua that were supportive of the, uh, the reforms in the beginning, but then uh, from them once they realized that this was a movement to, to basically overthrow the government of uh, President Ortega and Vice President Murillo. I think it took a lot of people by surprise. I think a lot of people who have been hearing a lot about the corruption and the um, um, how the, the Sandinista government had taken up most of the uh, institutional power and all of that. This is work that has been done for years, ideological work done through mm-hmm. social media, through opposition media, through civil society, through the church, etc. And this is the moment when it basically paid off for the regime change agencies of the United States because almost immediately you began hearing people say things like, well, it's not just about the reforms, it's also about the corruption, it's also about the lack of institutionality. And really when you look into it, when you look at the history of how laws were passed and how people got elected and the deals that were made and all of that stuff, um, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. A lot of it is information that has been manipulated or uh, legitimate reforms that are needed uh, to take place uh, at the government level, not necessarily uh, the Sandinista government, but like the infrastructure and the systems of governance um, that have been basically weaponized to attack the Sandinista government and bring about its, its demise. So it did take me by surprise in the beginning, but once I began to see the pieces come together, then I realized that this was a by the book regime change operation, much like what we're seeing in Venezuela, like what we saw in, in the Ukraine. And, you know, we can go all the way back to Poland, and even all the way back to uh, Iran and see elements of regime change that we're seeing now in Nicaragua. Right. And they've mastered this kind of operation where it's more 
um, insidious, of course, uh, with these kind of civil society actors. This is very similar to Venezuela. I mean, and we can get into in a second the quote-unquote authoritarian measures that Ortega took that all the corporate media is basically repeating to lay the groundwork ideologically, like you're saying, for regime change to become more palatable, where all of a sudden everyone can get behind with ousting Ortega because he's a corrupt tyrant um, who's gunning down people in the street. And I think that we really should focus right now on the opposition violence, which is very, very similar to Venezuela, because there's this constant narrative that we hear that, whether it be Maduro or Ortega, that they are gunning down peaceful protesters in the street. You know, Max, let's start with you. You spent weeks in Nicaragua speaking to these victims of opposition violence who have basically been rendered invisible by Western media. Talk about the horror stories that you uncovered and why you think the corporate media is ignoring these people on purpose. Yeah, there's definitely a conspiracy of silence around the Sandinista deaths um, and the Sandinistas who were tortured. Um, there was basically an attempt to purge the country of Sandinistas when the police were taken off the street during the national dialogue when um, Ortega was forced to issue an order calling for the police to stay in their stations, which led to police stations in certain areas becoming basically besieged. Um, one of the worst area was Masaya, which is a city about 45 minutes from Managua. It's a city of 80,000. And this is where the opposition attempted to declare their junta, um, basically to take it over as the Salafi Jihadi insurgents did in five neighborhoods of East Aleppo in Syria. Um, they didn't have the weapons to do so, but they were able to rampage throughout the the area and one of the neighborhoods that they took over that was sort of ideal territory uh, for their strategy was called Monimbo. Um, it's, you know, working class poor area just outside the downtown area of Masaya. And it's very sort of densely populated with really narrow streets. And the opposition strategy was to set up uh, tran tranques or uh, roadblocks where they'd basically take these um, stones out of the streets. Many of the streets in Nicaragua are like, um, I wouldn't call them cobblestone. They're these very uniform stones that are just placed together in the ground. And so you just take them out of the ground and then pile them up. And the next thing you know, you have a pretty strong barricade. They had homemade mortars and then um, actual rifles, including AK-47 started coming in. And they basically took this neighborhood and neighborhoods all across the country hostage. Uh, people inside those areas were unable to leave or enter without, you know, often paying tolls and being extorted um, by the tranquistas. In some cases, they were even tortured and killed. There was a case of an 11-year-old girl who was raped at uh, a tranque, at this very same tranque that I'm talking about, this roadblock in Monimbo. Um, a police officer who didn't carry a weapon, he was just a community police uh, you know, kind of counselor who worked with at-risk youth in that neighborhood was on his way home and they just basically dragged him from a truck to death and then took his corpse to the to that roadblock and filmed themselves burning him and throwing rocks on his head. Um, you know, I interviewed his wife and it was an extremely painful interview, especially not knowing the extent of the atrocity that she was about to describe to me. I met her in a police station in Hinotepe, 
which had been under siege for many, many weeks. And one of her colleagues told me that the opposition had actually rolled up gas, basically gas tanks, uh, propane tanks, and attempted to detonate them in front of the police station. Uh, about 22 police officers were killed during the violence. Um, and I could just point to a perfect example of the conspiracy of silence in The New Yorker uh, last week, an article by John Lee Anderson, which sort of paints uh, the liberation of Monimbo and Messiah uh, by the national police as some kind of horrible atrocity. When I went to Monimbo, people were so grateful that they weren't under the control of a bunch of criminal gangs uh, who had preyed on them and beaten them. I mean, I walked into several homes and met people who had, ha who had still had scars on their faces from being pulled out and beaten. Uh, people were living in absolute terror. And John Lee Anderson never mentions any of the violence that I just described. He never talks about it in this giant profile in The New Yorker, uh, which is so obviously geared towards the kind of Acela Corridor, liberal baby boomer crowd that's obsessed with fake news and thinks that, you know, Trump is the spawn of Satan because or, uh, Anderson employs all these tricks to um, paint Ortega as the sort of uh, kindred political spirit of Donald Trump, of Steve Bannon, and Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the fucking evil hydra. And then he accuses Ortega and his supporters of using fake news because they discussed and factually described opposition publications like Confidencial, which were clearly leading Anderson around the country as his personal Sherpa, as funded by USAID and the Open Society Institute, which is the sort of global foundation of George Soros, who's promoted color revolutions around the world. And so, you know, this is painted as Russian fake news in Anderson's article. And then the horrors that Sandinistas experienced around Messiah. I mean, I went into so many homes that had been burned just because their inhabitants were members of the uh, Frente, the FSLN, um, restaurants that had been completely trashed. I met students who had turned on the student protesters and had been like pulled out of their homes by men in pickup trucks and left by the roadside riddled with bullets, uh, you know, who were living under police guard. The amount of terror that any supporter of the government experienced during these uh, days when the police were kept in their stations was unbelievable. And we haven't heard about any of it. I mean, it's like no one can break through the conspiracy of silence and I don't understand why one journalist hasn't gone down there from any mainstream outlet to investigate this. I haven't seen anything about it. So it was definitely surreal for me to be in the country and to see the other side, um, as I assume it was for you, Abby, when you were in Venezuela during the Garimbas. Absolutely. I mean, it makes even a little bit more sense why journalists who go somewhere like Syria are just terrified to, you know, echo anything outside of what Al-Qaeda-linked forces are telling them to report. But somewhere like Nicaragua is just stunning that you can actually purposefully obfuscate so many opposition deaths, literally just ignore these facts. And not only that, Max and Camilla, but then you have corporate media just repeating the death toll, including things that are just people dying 
um, that have nothing to do with actually clashes from the government or opposition. I mean, for example, in Venezuela, it was the same thing where I think you had about eight people that were looting a bakery that all mass electrocuted themselves to death and they were included in the death toll as saying Maduro gunned down these people in the streets. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible that uh, these numbers are thrown around um, and reporters just repeat them with knowing better. And Camillo, I wanted to talk about another theme that's parroted is that all of the violence is actually being carried out by the government's own paramilitary forces under the guise of opposition protesters sent out to wreak havoc, apparently kill its own police forces and destroy its own infrastructure. Respond to that and also what specific targets um, yeah, definitely. That was a pretty amazing recount of what happened in Moneyball. I'd like to go back to that just for a second before I get into the questions you just asked, because I think another really important part of this uh, regime change design is to subvert the history, the revolutionary history of Nicaragua, and in particular of the Sandinista movement. Moneyball was basically the epicenter, uh, considered by many as the epicenter of the beginning of the end. The Somoza dictatorship. This cobblestone barricades, known as Max is talking about, were also erected back then. A lot of the people um, who were involved in the, in the resistance um, wore some of the same masks that they were wearing. Um, they also used homemade uh, weapons, you know, mortar weapons and, you know, um, contact bombs and things like that. Crimes uh, are very similar. They have stolen some of those from the Sandinista uh, insurrection. Um, some of the martyrs also basically are, are, have been created to replace some of the martyrs of the Sandinista revolution, like uh, the young child who was killed. Uh, some of the monuments that are uh, painted in, in the uh, red and black of the Sandinista flag have been repainted in, in white and blue, which is the color of the colors of the um, the national flag. So it it's, it hasn't just been a target in terms of the infrastructure and the uh, the services and the programs that the government has implemented that have benefited the the poor, but it's also about destroying the Sandinista legacy and destroying the history of Sandinismo because to them it's not enough for President Ortega step down. They want to destroy Sandinismo. They want to destroy the idea of a movement that has historically been popular and has been anti-imperialist, and they want nothing of that to remain. So I, I thought that um, I'd add that to the narrative here because I think it's very important to point that out. Uh, in terms of the paramilitary, um, Nicaraguan cops um, or at least Sandinista cops, have always worked with the community. The community and the police are almost the same entity in, in many places. But there are places that are anti-government where this is not the case. But for the most part, there are a lot of voluntary police who work alongside police officers or uniformed police um, who have been called um, paramilitaries or parapolice. What... Um, what they're not saying is that there has been tremendous uh, political persecution, including, you know, marking people's homes, uh, posting stuff on social media, um, 
burning of police officers in public, you know, he's all caught on film. Uh, historic Sandinista figures, you know, who were shot while removing some of these tanques. And so the the fact that they wear masks to protect their identities um, has been a direct result of the violence and the political prosecution. A lot of the uh, police officers and voluntary police who have been wearing masks, they're not paramilitary forces. They're police, and they are voluntary police, and a lot of them are just citizens who are or who were fed up with the violence and who were fed up with um, basically being under the control of these um, armed, violent opposition gangs who took matters into their own hands and went outside to remove the tranques and went outside to run out the uh, the criminals that were keeping their, host- their cities and neighborhoods hostage. And... That has been manipulated by the uh, by the opposition, you know, with the full support of Western media and human rights organizations, to basically depict the situation as if this is some kind of paramilitary massacre that's taking place, you know, uh, sanctioned by the government. But in reality, it has been a response to um, to the violence that has been generated um, by the opposition as a political weapon to create rejection against the government, to provide materials, to then get manipulated through social media, and to keep people from going out and speaking out against the violence of the opposition, because this is also a a campaign of intimidation. Uh, The targets are always Sandinista, um, the people who are being killed, as you mentioned, uh, about Venezuela. Um, There are people who are out there committing acts of vandalism, who have basically killed themselves in acts of vandalism. Those get attributed to government repression, people who have been killed by, you know, armed uh, robbery or, you know, other kinds of street violence have also been attributed to the um, the government. But the actual targets of the this opposition have been Sandinistas. And the way that they do that, they, they do it in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the, the the more common and macabre ways that they're doing this is through marches. They they stage marches, and then from marches they fire upon uh, government buildings or police stations and things like that. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to provoke a reaction from the police. They're trying to get the the, uh, the government to send out the military so that they can uh, they can um, capture images and 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 footage, and then ended out completely, you know, in a completely distorted way to be picked up by corporate Western media and continue to fuel the hatred and the rejection of the Sandinista government. But uh, in terms of um, the, the, the political targets, I would say that these are the targets of Sandinista. In terms of the social targets, I think that the poor have basically been the main target. You don't hear of tranques or extreme violence or people being burned in public in the rich neighborhoods. You don't hear of um, opposition businesses being burned down. Um, like Max said, you know, the COSEP, which is like the huge, um, the powerful business lobby in Nicaragua that was behind the IMF reforms. They own a lot of um, businesses and a lot of property. It's, it's been completely spared, the violence. The universities that have been the epicenters of uh, resistance have all been uh, public. 
Um, the students who have lost their, their school year are all from uh, public state universities. But politically, the targets have been Sandinistas. I think socially, it has been the poor. It does sound extremely cynical, but it is exactly what I experienced in Venezuela as well, following around these violent guarimbas, and they you know, came up to me, rushed me, said, who do you work for? And I just said, I'm, I'm an American. I'm here to tell your story. And they said, film what the government does to us. Don't film what we do. And the entire night, it was a clear provocation of them, you know, commandeering 18-wheeler trucks, pulling people out of their trucks, burning giant freeway barricades, provoking um, military outposts until eventually, after hours of basically vandalizing and and, um, lighting the city on fire, finally a couple tear gas rounds were thrown from a military outpost. And it just seems like that's exactly what's going on. But then the narrative that you'll hear is that the government, you know, you can't even protest against the government. They'll send out these paramilitary death squads to torture you, capture you, kill you, or shoot you if you're peacefully protesting in the street. That's not what I experienced at all in Venezuela. It seems like tens of thousands of people were able to express their grievances completely peacefully with zero government interference. Um, Max, there was that famous video being broadcast from the church of these students who were, uh, you know, seeking refuge there after being forced out of that nearby university, kind of akin to that last message from Aleppo. (laughs) Um, You had students that were sobbing, filming themselves, saying goodbye to their relatives as police were opening fire. Give us some background about what really went on there. Yeah, um, well, the background, I mean, just to explain the last messages from Aleppo, basically I'd mentioned earlier that um, U.S. and Gulf-backed Salafi jihadi militias had taken over five neighborhoods in East Aleppo, which the Western press corps simply referred to as Aleppo, uh, ignoring the fact that most people in Syria's largest city uh, had absolutely no interest in, or second largest city had absolutely no interest in having these um, elements basically infest their city and fire mortars and all sorts of uh, you know projectiles into their neighborhoods um, and they and, and you know shut down their desalination plant um, basically disrupt life as usual I, I don't know what America how Americans would feel about having literal al-Qaeda affiliates embedded in their cities, but that's what the residents of Aleppo had to deal with. The Syrian military and its allies with Russian air power uh, liberated East Aleppo. They removed them. And as it was all ending, and the whole there was this giant outpouring and festival, you know, this whole like festival of, uh, you know, tears mm-hmm. for the white helmets, and they were getting their, you know, they were getting nominated for the Nobel prize and getting their Oscar and everything right. Right. As it was about to end. And these forces were about to be pushed out of Aleppo. Um, the, they basically the influence operation that was functioning out of, um, Southern Turkey, which played the same role that I guess the Colombia plays towards Venezuela, sort of the base of U S and, uh, in Gulf operations on the border, they basically got all the English-speaking characters together that they had been introducing to Western media in East Aleppo to, de- to the- deliver their last message, as if they were all going to be killed. And these last messages went out on PBS. They went out on CNN especially. And all these figures, including a literal al-Qaeda member named Bilal Abdul Karim, 
um, all said, you know, we're going to die, and we were all supposed to cry for them. And the next day, they were taken out on green buses. All of them lived. They were taken to Idlib. Many went to Turkey and even became Turkish citizens, honorary mm-hmm. citizens, including mm-hmm. Bana Alabed. And this became actually a model for the Nicaraguan students who had taken over, as Camilo said, a public university that primarily served the poor in Managua called Unan, which I toured. And so I went to the university after they were removed. They had done on a very small scale what the Salafi Jihadi rebels had done to East Aleppo, which was leave complete ruin and pillage everything and use public uh, property as their base of, uh, of military operations. Um, they had, you know, burned the child care center down, which served 300 children of the staff. Um, they did that because that's where their, the armed elements bivouacked. And I found, you know, contact grenades there and homemade mortars lying around. Um, they destroyed a reproductive health and rehabilitation center, which served the local community for free. Um, they used those as their kind of dorms. And you could tell that a lot of the students had come from the private affluent university, UCA, University of Central America, which is also where the National Endowment for Democracy conducts a lot of its trainings, um, because they had written on the door, you know, UCA Chica, or Chica de UCA, uh, you know, UCA guy. And they set up little kind of code names for themselves. And so you could see that evidence. Um, basically, this one student among them named Daniela Valesca, uh, you know, when the students were being pushed out by uh, Sandinista supporters who were, you know, called, para- I guess we called them, they're, they're like referred to as paramilitaries. But basically, um, anyway, I'll get, I'll get to that subject. They, they pushed us, some of the students and their, you know, armed supporters who were not students into a church and it surrounded them. And Daniela Valeska does her last message from Nicaragua. And she says, Mama, but if you watch the video really carefully, you'll notice that she, her face is completely flat for the first second as she's waiting to, you know, basically decide that she's going to deliver this message. And she doesn't know she's quite recording. She's waiting for her phone to record. And then as soon as it starts recording, she just, her face, her facial expression immediately changes to pure terror. And she's screaming, Mama, Mama. I love you, Mama. I'll miss you so much. And it's exactly like last message from Aleppo. And, of course, Daniela Valeska lived. Uh, She was later taken in for police questioning, and she confessed that basically Unan had become infested with armed elements, uh, that they weren't just students who were peaceful protesters. And this basically justified what the paramilitaries had to do to recapture this school. Um, The students, as Camilo said, can't go to class anymore. Uh, for the rest of the year. These are poor students from all over the country. Uh, most of them, you know, they don't have Wi-Fi at home. Um, some of them live in rural, rural areas. And that means they can't study at home like the opposition students who are fine leaving class to do this because they could get their, you know, get their classes done um, at home with their wireless connections. Uh, I interviewed two students who were you know, leaders of the student union on campus uh, after this had taken place, and they took me around, and they, they're, they're, what they kept coming back to, their mantra was, this is a class war. It's a top-down class war being fought against us, the working people of Nicaragua. And I actually had a chance to talk to some of the uh, paramilitary members who were guarding the school, 
and you know they've been portrayed as Satan incarnate, um, as basically terrorists. Um, you know, in uh, private Spanish language media, they're called like totobas or like you know wild gang mobs. Uh, they basically emphasize the same point that we're here to defend this school, which represents the legacy of uh, Sandinista founding father Carlos Fonseca and the Six Percent Movement which was the Sandinista movement to direct 6% from the military budget into national education. And you see 6% written all over the remaining dormitories of the school, which hadn't been trashed by these uh, students and armed elements that escorted them there. So really, I looked at Inan as a um, microcosm of the entire soft coup. And, you know, the reason we're talking about this video of Daniela Valeska and the last messages is because it was just reproduced by the Washington Post who set a reporter to embed with the students and the armed elements who, of course, covered up the fact that they weren't just students. Um, it was in, you know, played on CNN, Espanol, CNN International, all the private channels. You'll just see this video again and again, but you have to remember, just like last messages from Aleppo, everyone in it is alive. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting how that happens. Uh, and it's just picked up everywhere as, you know, this Hollywood moment. That's when, um, that's when you know that, that's when you know you're facing a PSYOP and these <laughs> kind of influence operations just replicate one another uh, from one color revolution to the next. And for some reason, I don't know why. I mean, I would think that journalists would be interested in how this works and how they're being manipulated, but instead they're so opportunistic and careerist that they just roll with the punches. And, you know, that Washington Post reporter, Joshua Hartlow, has been writing, you know, one article after another that looks like a mimeograph of every article that comes out of Nicaragua, which is, Ortega fought Samosa and was a hero, and now he's the new Samosa. It's like, <laughs> well, why, why don't you just put, like, 50 monkeys in a room to keep, you know, because they could write the same thing over and over. It's like they're getting commands on what to write, and there's no analysis of critical scrutiny of the opposition's narrative. Yeah, it's just bots now, essentially, writing as uh, regime change bots. <laughs> um, Camillo, really briefly, before, I want to get into the regime change actors um, and these NGOs, civil society groups and stuff, but just really quickly, Camillo, it seems like there's this call from this kind of anarchist oriented left, but a lot of like liberal elites from this neoliberal uh, blob, you know, putting out the, the Washington consensus here, journalists out there who are basically just by default painting these protests as good, just because all protests must be good. And by default, the state is bad. You know, were other people in your camp, Camillo, that initially believed in the protests and then kind of saw the true character of them? The reason why so many people on the left, including leftist um, intellectuals and journalists, um, are basically um, endorsing this uh, regime change operation as a legitimate um, people's uprising is that the, uh, the one of the uh, leading entities of this uh, opposition movement is the MRS, which is the, uh, the Sandinista uh, Renovation Movement, which was basically a group of Sandinistas who, after the 1990 election defeat, decided that they wanted to 
gravitate more towards, you know, like a friendlier relationship with the United States and became the darlings basically of the NGO world. Um, Max mentioned a lot of money being poured into the opposition by USAID and MED, um, the uh, NDI and other regime change agencies. These were the people who began to receive a lot of these grants and who form or, or conform what is known today as the civil society. A lot of them are former Sandinistas, and they tend to be the more well-off Sandinistas who were the ambassadors, and some of them, you know, um, had the, the, there were deputies uh, in the National Assembly, and they were the people who spoke different languages and who held the uh, solidarity movement between the Sandinista movement and uh, solidarity movements throughout the world. They uh, tried to become more neoliberalized. And the Sandinista, the more popular Sandinista uh, faction of the Ortegas and um, some of the people who remained with the government realized that the loss at the 1990 election was not merely an electoral loss, but part of a larger effort to destroy Sandinismo. So, that, you know, two factions were created and a lot of the, uh, the people internationally who supported the revolution had as their only line of communication and connection to Nicaragua were these MRS people. So a lot of the people mm. in the United States uh, have only, the only point of reference for what's happening in Nicaragua are these uh, coup mongers, you know, who are once Sandinistas and who are 100% financed by U.S. regime change agencies and the European Union. Um, so I think that explains a lot of why so many people on the left in the U.S. and then also in in, in the um, in Nicaragua, people who were former Sandinistas are now endorsing this movement. Um, this is also history repeating itself. When when the Sandinistas overthrew the dictatorship of Somoza, the movement was much larger, and it included a lot of people from the oligarchy. It included people uh, from the business sectors, the petty bourgeoisie, because they were being strangled by the dictatorship and they hated Somoza. So they supported the Sandinistas, but once the Sandinistas overthrew the dictatorship, once again they wanted to go to a free market economy mm -hmm. uh, driven basically by businesses and capital. Um, and the Sandinistas said, no, we're going to implement programs of social uplift for the poor. We're going to teach everybody how to read. We're going to give everybody, um, you know, access to health care and all of those things. So this is also history repeating itself, the, the more affluent uh, factions of society are always going to be against any government, not just the Sandinista government, but any government that wants to put a little bit more food on the plate of the, the, the working poor. And that's basically the um, the sin of the Sandinistas is to, to be pro-people. Uh, but that, I think that explains a lot of the, um, the, uh, the left being, or the alleged left being on the opposition side. I think it also points to a neoliberalization of the left, mm -hmm. the global left, and people basically believe in anything that they hear from the BBC or Amnesty International, not realizing that these are also part of the regime change operation. Um, and not not to, um, um, to take into account how in the past a lot of this, not all, but a lot of these media organizations have also um, attacked leftist movements and, you know, a lot of the same actors that we're going to get into in a minute 
um, have also been um, in opposition to any popular um, movements like the Sandinista movement. Um, and so I, I think that a, a little bit of it is, you know, like the neoliberalization of the left. And I think some of it is basically like the co-optation of, you know, a, a sector within Sandinismo um, back in the 90s that took place. And so I think that's behind a lot of that. I think a lot of people have been um, basically um, manipulated into believing that this was um, a popular uprising against, uh, you know, a, a, a brutal dictatorship because they were basically being bombarded by all these images uh, that were pushed through social media, which I think that social media really is a weapon of war. And it's not on the side of the poor. It's on the side of corporations mm -hmm. and it's on the side of rich governments. And that's clear as daylight in what's happening in Nicaragua because when you look at a lot of the uh, manipulated information that comes from, from the right and from the opposition, it's readily uh, spread. Um, and when you see, um, you know, people from the left trying to counter that manipulation, uh, they're readily censored. I think that they, they have already shut down a Telesur uh, a page on Facebook. They have shut down uh, a Barricada uh, page on Facebook as well. People who are uh, promoting the truth in Nicaragua are also being having their their accounts revoked and canceled and suspended. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, social media has played a big role in, in, in what's happened here and has basically created um, a lot of opposition to the government based on this manipulated information. The Sandinistas actually, I think, learned a lot from Venezuela and from what's happened in Venezuela because they, um, it, they basically resisted the temptation to send out the, uh, the military and the police because there was a realization that this was part of the design that by provoking uh, confrontations between um, protesters and police and the government sending out the, uh, the police and the military, um, they would be able to take that, you know, create more, more hatred against the government by manipulating images and footage. And the Sandinistas understood that, and for, for some time it was very painful because the, the police were not out. Um, they were out, but only, you know, in operations to get at the... Uh, the leadership of the opposition, but you know, by and large, they stayed in their in their uh, stations. The military did not go out at all, and like I said, that was very painful for a lot of people who wanted to be armed and who wanted the government to be more uh, responsive to the violence uh, created and generated by the opposition. But the government withheld its forces, and the effect that that had was that a lot of people was were able to see. One, that the opposition was not peaceful, that they were the ones out there uh, attacking uh, Sandinistas and attacking, you know, just passerbys and people who happened to be in the wrong place and at the wrong time. And then another thing that happened was that people realized that, you know, a lot of the uh, those who were affected were the poor, that this was happening in the poor neighborhoods, that this was happening at public universities and public clinics were being ransacked and stuff like that. So the opposition itself exposed itself. Uh, and so a lot of people who had been basically under the, the social media spell were able to see the reality and realize that this is no, no peaceful demonstration, that this is a, a concerted effort 
well-financed and well-guided by the U.S. to overthrow the government of Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo. And so a lot of people snapped out of the, uh, the spell. And you can see that in the marches today, whenever the Sandinistas have a march, you see hundreds of thousands of people. And whenever you see the opposition have a march, they have maybe hundreds, if that. I definitely understand how it um, is convincing to people here. I guess I'm more confused about why it is affecting people who were previously Sandinista, like your father, I mean, who was who's now publicly against Ortega. I mean, how did your father come to that position and how much do you think his sentiments are reflected in the broader Sandinista movement? Well, my, my father um, is part of a group of people um, that includes other artists and intellectuals and, you know, well-off Sandinistas, people who um, were ambassadors or who were uh, National Assembly deputies and, you know, who were basically in positions of power, who had this disagreement with the government because they didn't really understand how the, the loss of the 1990 election was part of a much larger effort to destroy anything that would um, threaten uh, the neoliberal economic model. And slowly but surely, these people were co-opted uh, in many different ways. Like I said before, this is um, mm. something that ideologically has been in the works for decades. Um, you can look at some of the, um, the WikiLeaks embassy cables and see how a lot of the leaders of the opposition movement uh, and I'm talking about people in the feminist organizations. I'm talking about people in political organizations, people in university student groups. Uh, where I'm talking about parties from the right. I'm talking about uh, pretty much every significant figure in the opposition has been meeting with the U.S. Embassy for at least um, 10 to 12 years. And there's been a lot of financing that has gone into um, these people, these entities, and it has all been uh, well disguised as, you know, progressive feminist or equality or education movements. And it's, it's very effective because, I mean, I think this dates back to uh, the beginning of the, the 80s when NED was founded in 1983. And they realized that they could no longer continue to do regime change CIA style because it was too damaging to U.S. Right. Uh, to, to the image of the U.S. as a beacon of democracy. So they began operating through civil society organizations that have this uh, facade of being progressive and being pro-people, but that in reality are basically uh, embedded agents uh, for regime change, you know, financed and directed by the United States. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people, when you talk about self-school, they immediately go to military school and they say, that's not happening here. A lot of people do not understand how civil society organizations can play a huge role in that. A lot of people don't understand how social media can be a mm-hmm. weapon of war. And I believe many people, including my father, have been uh, manipulated in that way. And this is not something that happened uh, beginning in April, but something that has been in the works for at, at least um, 18, 18 years. Right. And. Uh, I think Max and I were talking earlier about just how all of the, right, all of the opposition trolls and, you know, social media presence, the poor and working class people of Nicaragua and Venezuela and a lot of these Latin American countries, they're not present on Twitter and Facebook and they're not out there 
um, parroting these narratives and, and posting all these photos and stuff, a lot of them, you know, have don't have as much access to the internet and also are not fluent in English, um, like a lot of the more wealthy, affluent people of these countries are. So that also completely skews the narrative, of course, on top of the, the civil society actors and just incessant propaganda that we're talking about. Max, you've done excellent work for Gray Zone uncovering these regime change players. Um, shortly before student protesters came to meet with neocons in Washington, you discussed that a publication funded by the National Endowment for Democracy asserted that organizations backed by NED have spent years and millions of dollars, quote, laying the groundwork for insurrection in Nicaragua. Uh, talk more about these DC meetings and the NED's roles in meddling in other countries' democratic processes, specifically Nicaragua. Well, uh, this is you know central to understanding what's happening uh, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela. Um, I think you can understand what, a lot of what how Syria was presented to the Western public in this way. Uh, they're turning their barrels on China um, with this narrative of Uyghur re-education camps that we're seeing increasingly, uh, which remains totally unproven. Uh, there's an attempt by these elements to sabotage uh, peace talks between South and North Korea, which most people in South Korea, I mean, an overwhelming number of people in South Korea favor. And I kind of put all of this together in a mini documentary with Thomas Hedges, which you can find at the Gray Zone Project, uh, grayzoneproject.com, or it's pinned to the top of my Twitter account, Max Blumenthal. But basically, that will give you a lot of the history of the NED and USAID, which is the U.S. Agency for International Development, which actually, I think, is the agency for interfering with independence and development and is an arm of the State Department. Both are funded through the State Department. Uh, the NED also takes money from corporations. They have two arms, the National Democratic Institute, which has been run by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the sort of uh, author of sanctions on Iraq. And John McCain ran the International Republican Institute. Um, and these, are, these both go into countries and do training sessions for um, for students, they um, pay people to be electoral observers, and it's actually a form of interference. Um, in 2005, um, you know, Kabila had been talking about the MRS, the former Sandinistas. Robert Zellick, who is the Undersecretary of State for Latin America, uh, visited Nicaragua and met with the head of that time of the MRS, Herti Luides, who later died of a heart attack. And Eduardo Montealegre, who is a corrupt banker from the right-wing PLC, which is it's just like this extreme right-wing party. And he basically committed to funding both of their election campaigns against Ortega in 2006 through the International Republican Institute. And this included thousands of electoral observers. And that meant that, I mean, just imagine if in a U.S. election, Russia had paid thousands of electoral observers to carry out exit polls, which were then received by international media as the official exit polls. And, you know, exit polling can be used to manipulate elections by convincing people, oh, there's no point in coming out to vote, your candidate lost. It's really shocking that Ortega managed to actually win that election with the amount of U.S. interference. Luidas uh, was replaced by Edmundo Harkin, who is the son-in-law of the former right-wing president, Violeta Chamorro. 
So all of these people are mixed up together, even though they pretend to be the true Sandinistas with the right wing. And they wound up getting a very small percentage of the vote. I think they got one mem- uh, member of parliament. Basically, they did horribly. But the whole point, um, and the money kept coming in, because the whole point was to divide the Sandinistas and to create this narrative that Ortega is a dictator. Um, meanwhile, the National Endowment for Democracy was pumping millions into opposition media like Confidencial, which is one of the first stops that any Western journalist will make because it's kind of a highbrow publication in Managua, uh, as I mentioned, funded by the NED and the Open Society Institute. Um, they've been funding these so-called human rights groups um, like um, IEEPP, which is led by Felix Maradiaga, who is a central leader of the coup. He was filmed actually with uh, armed gunmen plotting uh, insurrection, and he has received hundreds of thousands of dollars a year through the NED. He's now in the U.S. Uh, he actually recently was received at the Aspen Institute, which is, you know, this kind of TED Talk elite organization in Aspen, Colorado, where he's a fellow. And he was on stage with New York Times neocon columnist David Brooks for a seminar on moral leadership this uh, coup leader who mixed in with violent criminal elements. It was just, it just, you know, it becomes a parody at a certain point if you actually know the history of these people, but they're so deeply involved with Western institutions that, as Camilo mentioned, are not directly acting under the auspices of the CIA and are functioning as sort of NGOs and doing uh, what the CIA used to do overtly in places like Iran uh, sorry, covertly in places like Iran, they're doing overtly. Um, between 2014 and 2017, the NED contributed about $4.1 million to opposition groups in Nicaragua, and that's on top of USAID contributing $5 million. Um, at a recent meeting between Felix Maradiaga and several opposition uh, student figures in Washington, uh, the US, USAID committed $1.5 million more, basically, to keep the kind of coup apparatus going. And what this has done is what the NED-funded publication, Global Americans, boasted about right after the insurrection erupted, which is laying the groundwork for change. Actually, the original title of the article is Laying the Groundwork for Insurrection. And it's written by... Uh, sort of regime change apparatchik who's an American academic named Benjamin Waddell, who is basically, you know, so enraptured by the chaos that, he, you know, these elements that he was apparently working for had helped cause that he didn't really see how uh, boasting about it could actually be used to reinforce um, my reporting on exposing how U.S. meddling has driven chaos in Nicaragua. Waddell then turned around and he wrote another article about how Ortega is a fascist and Nicaragua is descending into fascism in the Huffington Post. Uh, and it was just a completely absurd article. But the point stands, the U.S. has been directly involved in split, attempts to split the Sandinistas, finance the opposition, uh, steal elections, do things that Americans would find completely unacceptable. And the end result has been that while they failed to remove not just Ortega, 
but to smash the Sandinista movement, and that's what this is really about. They have succeeded in tanking a very successful and productive economy that was growing at rates of 4 to 5% a year. Um, they have succeeded in taking a country that was not contributing to the migration crisis and causing one where none existed. Uh, now you have lines, uh, people trying to get visas to Costa Rica, people um, illegally migrating to Costa Rica, and destabilizing a previously stable country. And that ultimately has been the legacy of these groups that claim to be spreading democracy, human rights, and development around the globe. And you look at anywhere that the NED has really um, put its footprint down. And it reminds me of that horror movie called The Hitcher, starring Rutger Hauer, where this guy hitchhikes from town to town, and every town he arrives in, he leaves a trail of bloodshed behind. <laughs> and that's the NED. The NED is the hitcher. Yeah, absolutely. Max, you were just in this debate with Mary Ellsberg on Real News Network. I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, but she brings up the Organization for American States as an unbiased entity. This is an entity that's at the forefront of condemnation for Venezuela and, of course, now Nicaragua. Just briefly talk about what the Organization for American States is and why it essentially is an arm of the U.S. empire. Well, the Organization of American States was founded at the dawn of the Cold War with the explicit mission of fighting socialism in Latin America. Um, and, you know, you can look at what the OAS did in supporting the U.S. Marine intervention in the Dominican Republic in 1965, I believe, before, uh, when the, uh, there was a rebellion against the United Fruit Company and corporations basically trying to use the Dominican Republic as their own personal plantation. Dominicans attempted to have a state, and the U.S. Marines just came in and said, sorry, and the OAS just was, was a key part of reinforcing the U.S. intervention, green lighting it and rubber stamping it and then approving it. And that's what they're doing with Venezuela. I mean, I went to an OAS meeting on Venezuela and Washington earlier this year, and basically all they do is hold these meetings week after week to condemn Venezuela. They accused Nicolas Maduro of crimes against humanity and, of course, ignored all of the deaths of government supporters during the Garimbas, including people who are burned alive. And one of the experts they brought out was this Canadian lawyer who's basically the Canadian version of Alan Dershowitz named Erwin Kotler, who is a complete paid shill for the Israel lobby. And he'll run over to Israel and deliver the, you know, a, a, a similar press conference defending what Israel's been doing in the Gaza Strip. Um, so I kind of got up and called him out and said, you know, this is complete hypocrisy. Like, who are you to judge anyone? But this really rips the mask off of the OAS and what it is. It's just basically an arm of American power and the tentacles of Washington uh, sucking the veins of Latin America dry. Any country that tries to get out of the U.S. sphere of influence is going to fall under the face the wrath of the OAS. And so Mary Ellsberg, it was really revealing when I was debating her. Um, you know, she's another one of these people who claims to kind of be a former Sandinista and hangs out with the MRS, um, which is like basically the U.S. embassy arm of the Sandinistas. And, uh, you know, she's written grants for USAID. She boasts about it on her CV. Her son is an, op an advisor to the opposition, Julio Martinez. He debated Camilo 
um, and based on democracy now. And, you know, I'd encourage everyone to watch that debate because Julio Martinez's main talking point was all the celebrities are against Ortega and the Sandinistas. Like, come on, Camilo, like the celebrities, uh, all the famous people like um, Bianca Jagger are against the government. How can you say this? And it was like, it's just it such an elite narrative. You know, Mary Ellsberg kept citing the report issued by um, the, the IACHR report the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights report, which was issued by the OAS on Nicaragua, which, again, whitewashes the deaths and abuses that Sandinistas suffered and inflates those suffered by the opposition and declares, essentially, that the coup was, in fact, a civil protest that was cracked down on by a vicious dictator, uh, which stands at total odds with what I witnessed. And this group, uh, IACHR, this arm of the OAS, relied on human rights groups, if you can even call them human rights groups, that were part and parcel of the opposition in Nicaragua. They didn't go down and do any fieldwork of their own. They relied on these other groups as proxies. One of them was uh, ANPDH, um, which is run by elements that participated directly in some of the activities I described in Messiah, where they would actually send their personnel to police stations that were under attack during the day and beseech the police to lay down their arms and give up, which is just part of the, the kind of color revolution strategy. So like you're talking about actors in a coup attempt who then are being treated as serious sources by this international organization and one point that was made by the independent researcher Enrique Hendricks, who wrote, I think, the best counterpoint to all these phony reports, is that the um, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the OAS report, contained nine duplicate deaths. Nine people's deaths were repeated twice. And this is what Mary Ellsberg, who's tried to be kind of the gatekeeper of the narrative in D.C., uh, was citing as her authoritative source. So at every level, I mean, you just strip away the opposition's narrative and it's like an onion. You just peel one letter back after another until you just get to the rotten core and all it is is, you know, a right-wing counter-revolution wrapped in sadistic violence and purging the Sandinistas from public life. And Camillo, you wrote that open letter to Amnesty, I mean, to Max's point here, um, calling them out for their extreme bias, depending only on opposition narratives, um, for people who's, who think that amnesty is some, you know, ultimate arbitrator of, of morality and human rights. I mean, just talk really briefly about why you wrote that letter. What's really outraging to see how Amnesty International was basically repeating a lot of these um, accusations that were completely uncorroborated as if they were the truth. And upon a little bit of research, I'm talking about not even 10 minutes of research, I encountered that they have been playing a very similar role in other conflict areas throughout the world. Um, and even one of their own uh, field researchers has basically admitted to using uh, manipulated information to create this image of dictatorship or genocide or or whatever the case may be. I wanted to add a couple of points to what Max was saying about the ANPDH 
uh, which is Asociación Nicaragüense Pro Derechos Humanos or Nicaraguan Association Pro Human Rights. This uh, human rights group, which has been at the forefront of this whole manipulation of death to generate um, opposition and hatred against the Sandinista government, was actually uh, founded and financed by the Reagan administration at a time when the Contras were uh, becoming indefensible because of the atrocities that they were committing. And so this ANPDA was basically embedded with the Contras, and their job was to basically whitewash a lot of their crimes. The International, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights also, um, its, um, its headquarters is in the United States, and it's uh, funded also by the United States, but the United States is immune to it. So while the United States government and ambassador to the OAS is leading this political and diplomatic charge against Nicaragua, the United States itself is not subject to any reports or any investigations by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And this is also something that we can find throughout history even with the predecessor to the American, the Organization of American States, which was Union or Pan American Union, which was also an entity that was used by the United States to enforce policies that were uh, detrimental to the sovereignty and the economies of nations throughout Latin America, and that would benefit uh, U.S. intervention, um, mostly economic but also political intervention throughout the Americas. So there's a long history of this happening. The OAS and the, the Union, um, the Pan-American Union, have always been basically regime change tools or, you know, otherwise diplomatic and political tools used by the U.S. to impose its political and economic will throughout Latin America. And what we're seeing right now is basically a repeat of that. And, and I think that this is more widespread than people would like to, to recognize because it's not just the local human rights organizations or the regional uh, political uh, diplomatic organization, but it's also Human Rights Watch. It's also Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. yep. um, it, there's basically like a whole uh, apparatus of human rights organizations that have basically become uh, regime change tools. And you have the UN report, which came out um, Last week, the United Nations has basically attempted to come in and reinforce the OAS with its own report. And it's really revealing because um, the UN uh, representative has decided to give his first interview shopping and marketing the report to Confidential, which is the USAID and Soros-funded opposition voice in Nicaragua, uh, to uh, Juan Fernando Chamorro from the dynastic Chamorro family, which basically controls the opposition and helped kind of orchestrate the protests that led to so many deaths, uh, if you can even call them protests. So it was really revealing that the UN representative went straight to the Chamorro clan and to USAID to market this report, and it really shows where their priorities are. And I think the headline of the Confidential article is, you know, UN finds it was not a coup, it was a civil protest. Um, I think that's another reason why we see established mainstream media and even uh, people on the liberal left just uh, take seriously the opposition's narrative 
Um, and for the same reason, I think that a lot of people have fallen into the most hysterical realms of Russiagate in the U.S. is that the, 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 the publications and the institutions that they've come to trust their whole lives are responsible for a really uh, bunk narrative, and it's coming out under the banner of the New York Times or the U.N. So they, 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 they're conditioned to trust these as objective and don't see uh, how Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International or even the United Nations and certainly the OAS could actually not be an objective institution and have an agenda which is hostile to the interests, I think, of most people in Nicaragua, people whose voices we don't hear because, you know, they're not English speakers. They're peasants. They're the urban poor. Uh, they're the people I met who came out at hundreds of thousands on July 19th to celebrate the Sandinistas' 39th anniversary of their revolution. And nobody, and I mean nobody among Western media, got off of the rostrum where the press were put and walked into the crowd to talk about people, why they talked to people about why they came out or what they had endured uh, during the chaos. And if they had, they would have heard something that said totally at odds with the narrative that's been projected into pretty much every house and home from Europe to the United States. They are actually, the UN is actually recognizing uh, this very shady character in the opposition named Felix Maradiaga that, as yeah. Max said, uh, was seen uh, with armed opposition members at Upoli, the, you know, one of the universities used as a staging ground for criminal activity, uh, said to be, you know, the, uh, the headquarters for, like, the students' movement. But this person has been implicated by um, organized crime leaders who were caught by Nicaraguan police as one of the masterminds, basically, behind the violence. Um, this person who was seen with armed opposition members and who was implicated with, um, uh, with this criminal network um, is also one of the most funded members of the opposition by USA, as, as Max mentioned. And he is being uh, recognized by the UN as a legitimate uh, member of the opposition to speak on behalf of the Nicaraguan opposition before the UN General Assembly. This is the level of complicity that we are seeing in, in today's UN. In addition to that, their report, when you read the report and you read uh, the segments when it, where it talks about torture and disappearances and, and, and police brutality and, and things like that, you, you'll notice that they're always saying things like, according to accounts by people who were tortured, according to testimonies that we received, or we heard from so-and-so that this is the case. We have, when I say we, Sandinistas have actual evidence. I mean, Max met with a Sandinista youth who still bore the marks of uh, burning from, um, you know, they, they were dripping uh, Plastic bag, bag. On his yeah, face. onto his body, beat him. There was a video. Oh my God. There's video footage of him, the moment when he's being beaten on his knees with a swollen, bloody face in front of priests because we haven't talked about the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church has been the one pillar that has basically held it all together because one of the things that this uh, opposition movement has claimed is that it's, it's spontaneous and self-summoned so it doesn't really have a clear leadership. The church has provided that leadership.
where a lot of the criminals they have been used as storage room for weapons and medicine that has been stolen from clinics and things like that. Um, and Max actually met with this young young man who was tortured. And that's just one example of many uh, well-documented cases of torture, people being burned publicly. Uh, it's, it's just amazing how when you compare the, the, the quality and the amount of evidence um, basically uh, collected by the Sandinista side, and you look at the evidence that the other side has, which is incredibly questionable and uncorroborated and unsupported by any factual evidence, um, and yet the United Nations is actually recognizing a member of the opposition who's been sought by Nicaraguan authorities because of his ties to criminal activity and, and the violence in Nicaragua. But this is the level of complicity by the United Nations that we're seeing today. It is truly stunning, Max. And when you went to that meeting where they were handing out pamphlets saying who's going to take over Venezuela next with this yoked out Venezuelan and sponsored by all these oil corporations and defense contractors, I mean, they were laughing at you when you were talking about uh, simply facts, provable testimony of torture victims, victims of this violence. And I went to a meeting that you just mentioned at the Brookings Institution, um, which is the sort of think tank of the establishment and it's become increasingly, I would say, increasingly neoconservative due to its donors. Um, but the Brookings Institute hosted Mark Green, who is the head of USAID. He is a Trump appointee. He's a former Republican congressman from uh, Wisconsin, basically the salesman for other regime change operations, putting a sunny Reagan-esque face on it all. And he appeared inside uh you know the bowels of the brookings institution i sit down and i notice that the whole place is filling up with like mcmaster's former hr mcmaster's former staff all the half the bush administration's last you know the, the last bush administration latin american staff is filling up some guys start speaking spanish and english accents behind me and uh you know i realized seated behind me is roger noriega who is basically one of the most important figures in the Miami Cuban right-wing lobby and handled Bush's Cuban policy and actually attempted to spearhead a coup attempt as late as 2014 under Obama through various subs, you know, acts of subterfuge. He said that, uh, you know, chaos is the goal. He wanted, he wanted to continue to spread chaos in Cuba. So he's sitting behind me. Mark Green's talking about, you know, Venezuela and Nicaragua and how all the important things USAID is doing to spread democracy there. And I got one of the three questions that were allowed. And I asked Mark Green, you know, about his meeting with the person that Camilo just mentioned, Felix Maradiaga, who is a USAID and NED grantee who had been filmed with members of the criminal gang run by someone named Viper, uh, specifically Pio Ariano, who is his chief of operations at a university the opposition had taken over. And you know, I posted video of Ariano waving a pistol around while Mario Diaga's kind of cheering him on. Mario Diaga's now in the States. And I said, you know, can you talk about your proximity to violent criminal elements uh, who are involved in the deaths of at least 60 Sandinistas and maybe more? Um, I don't remember what my exact question was, Green completely brushes me off and says, you know, this is what Ortega does. He's, I'm Daniel Ortega. He blames <laughs> everyone else. 
he blames everyone else for what he, you know, for his crimes. And then Roger Noriega accosts me right after this event, and he's just furious. Uh, he's like, what are you talking about? No Sandinistas were killed. 300 people. And, you know, he, he rattles off the established narrative of 300 peaceful protesters were personally gunned down by Ortega while he was, like, stroking a cat. Um, you know, like, <laughs> com- evil, com- you know, Sandinista computer cave. And, you know, he's just arguing with me and arguing with me. Um, and I said, you know, I'm happy to send you, you know, uh, data even from, you know, human rights groups in Nicaragua that demonstrates what I said, I'll send you the video of Felix Maradiaga. I'll send you whatever you want, you know? And he's like, I don't even know who you are. Next thing I know, a, a crew from Voice of America, the U.S. regime media organization pulls Noriega aside for an interview. So then they're handing out these magazines. Um, this is the, the event was put on by Council of the Americas, which is funded by David Rockefeller, uh, the late member of the you know, Rockefeller family, who said that he favored a one-world government. Uh, you know, I'm not into conspiracy thinking, but, you know, when, you, when, when I'm getting a magazine that has David Rockefeller's name on the letterhead and the cover of the magazine, I'm actually pulling out the magazine right now. Um, the, the cover of the magazine has just a bold headline, after Maduro. And two days before this event, there had been an assassination attempt on Nicolas Maduro. Uh, it's pretty obvious. The magazine called America's Quarterly it's pretty obvious what the agenda is here. And USAID's representative didn't want to talk about it. But this character, Felix Maradiaga, has been on this kind of lobbying junket to the U.S., obviously influenced the U.N. report. And really it helped lift the cover on how biased all of these international institutions are that they're talking to a character who is so morally compromised and shady uh, like Maradiaga. So... Uh, I think it's important to continue to scrutinize these reports and expose them. It's really hard to do because, you know, there's so much other work to do, as you know, Abby, and it's like I can't be, me and Camilo can't keep running around trying to put out fires everywhere, but there are other important um, outlets I think your listeners should know about, like Tortilla con Sal. Um, which has daily updates from Nicaragua from uh, perspective you won't hear in U.S. media. And, um, you know, Telesur has been under attack because they've been, you know, they've been reprinting a lot of good columns by Tortilla Consal. It's a collective of journalists and activists in Nicaragua. Um, and you've been experiencing the consequences of that attack, uh, which is also an economic attack on Venezuela and the entire kind of pink tide in uh, South and Central America. So Camillo, I think I think that the part that that's missing from this interview is the history of U.S. interference in the country, you know, leading to the Somoza dictatorship and the Sandinista National Liberation Front overthrowing this 40 year dictatorship and, you know, the economic and social reforms um, from the Ortega leadership after that, I mean, can you just take us through the most important points to hit on leading us up to today? Definitely. Um, well, the U.S. intervention of Nicaragua began as soon as they ended their push west when they found gold in California. I'm talking about mid of the uh, 19th century. And at the time, I believe it was... Um, 
Cornelius Vanderbilt, who basically was the um, the corporate interest that was looking to use the San Juan River, uh, which connects to the Great Nicaragua Lake, to basically ship goods um, through that route and then up um, either the coast or the the uh, Pacific Ocean to connect goods from um, New York, you know, all the way to the West Coast via um, river or lake and then ocean or land. Um, and this was basically uh, a point of interest for the U.S. Um, around um, building a canal that lasted uh, well into the um, the beginning of the next century, the 20th century, when plans to um, to build a canal in Nicaragua dropped in favor of um, basically buying the uh, the rights and equipment from the French to build a canal through uh, through Panama. Um, the the interest then shifted uh, from building a canal to preventing a canal from being built. Um, and we can fast forward to today when the Nicaraguan government has signed a treaty or a concessions law with the Chinese government to build a, a, a canal through the very same route uh, that the Chinese have said that they would need to um, clear some of the debt that they acquired uh, from the U.S. This is U.S. debt owned by the Chinese um, in order to pay for the, the, the building of this canal. So there's several interests there by the U.S prevent this canal from being built. Um, but fast forwarding from the whole canal issue at the turn of the 20th century, um, there were also some of the same uh, interests that Max mentioned connected to the DR, including the United Food Company and, and other corporate interests in the region that uh, led to several uh, invasions and occupations um, by the U.S. using the Marines um, who were uh, fought uh, by General uh, Sandino, who was basically the inspiration behind Sandinista movement, who fought the Marines at the end of the uh, 1920s and beginning of the 1930s, when the, um, the U.S. decided to remove the Marines but leave behind a small contingency to train a force known as the National Guard that was then led by General Anastasio Somoza, who marked the period of the Somoza dictatorship that lasted um, almost continuously for for 42 years, 42 to 45 years, depending on how you're um, counting it, because there were several puppet presidents that responded to Somoza and U.S. interest. Um, but those were the ones, uh, that was the, the dynasty that was overthrown by the Sandinista movement back in 79, and that led to eventually the U.S. Uh, economic embargo and the contrast, which basically were defeated militarily by the Sandinista government, but created so much pain uh, to the population in terms of uh, the loss of life and then in terms of the economy and the fear and people just being tired of war that, in, in my opinion, the 1990 election was a stolen election because it happened in that context of U.S. Um, pressure and military and economic and social pressure against the Sandinistas, which, by the way, was uh, the subject of a lawsuit from the Sandinista government uh, against the United States that the Nicaraguan government won at The Hague in, I believe, 1987 or 1986, actually, 
that found the U.S. guilty of acts of aggression and terrorism against the Nicaraguan um, state and its people and fined the U.S. $17 billion in reparations. Of course, the U.S. did not abide by that, and they withdrew <laughs> from the trial and said that they no longer uh, supported the, uh, the International Court of Justice, except, of course, when it's ruled in its favor. Um, but then after this election loss, I believe the U.S. thought that they had gotten rid of the Sandinistas. This is when there was the split uh, at the, uh, you know, the, the party level where a lot of people split off and, you know, founded the MRS that we talked about before. And that created this ideological fracture um, in the Sandinista movement that basically devolved into what the MRS is today, which is this regime change tool uh, by the United States to, to affect regime change. Uh, lo and behold, the Sandinistas were able to win again in 2006. I think this is in part um, due to the fact that uh, the Sandinista base is a historic base, it's a revolutionary base of 35 to 40% of the population. And also due to the fact that the neoliberal governments at the time rejected an offer by then Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez to be part of ALBA. And President Enrique Bolaño said, no, I, I don't want your money. I don't want to be part of a movement of regional independence because I'm, you know, busy doing everything the U.S. wants me to do. Uh-huh. And Chavez turned to Ortega and he said, hey, do you want it? Do you want to be a part of this? And Ortega said, absolutely. And this is how the, uh, the FSLN was able to implement a lot of programs and initiatives to bring uh, Nicaragua's forests out of misery and to start implementing some plans that were able to not only harness on that uh, historic base, uh, but also on the support of Nicaragua's poorest, to, um, to, who saw the Sandinista movement as the only way out of poverty after you know, 16 years of neoliberal ransacking, basically, of the country and its resources, and were able to win again at the um, at the polls in 2006, like Max said, this was a you know winner by surprise situation where the U.S. poured tons of money uh, for the Sandinistas not to return to power, and ever since then the Sandinistas have been able to reduce poverty by two thirds. They cut it in half in a record time of seven years. Uh, we have been able to achieve uh, food sovereignty. We produce about 90% of the food that we eat. We, we grow in Nicaragua. This is also due to a popular market economy where people are not merely slaves to the neoliberal economy, but producers themselves. We're talking about peasants, peasant women programs. We're talking about cooperatives. We're talking about small business loans at zero interest to basically get production going, uh, you know, alongside infrastructural upgrades. The roads have been uh, rebuilt. They're the best in Central America among the best in, in Latin America, Max mentioned, you know, 4 to 5% economic growth for the past few years, and universal health care, universal education through university. Um, we're talking about housing programs. We're talking about food bonuses and things like that, all happening outside the context of the neoliberal um, economy. And so the Sandinistas not only represent a thorn on the side of U.S. imperialism from the beginning of U.S. imperialism outside of the U.S., um, but also, you know, the interest around the canal and the ability 
grow an economy without being fully dependent on the transnational neoliberal economy, which I think represents an existential threat to capitalism. Because if a, if a small, poor nation is able to implement all these changes without throwing its forest under the bus, then imagine what you know other countries with, with more resources, with more land, uh, with, with, with more capital, with more infrastructure, more industry can do if the Nicaraguan economy has been so successful um, in all of these areas of life for its people without, you know, bending down to U.S. will. That's a terrible example. So I think that historically, I think that in terms of the, uh, the, the concessions law signed with China, and I think in terms of, you know, implementing all these programs and initiatives of social uplift, uh, we have once again become you know, one of the main targets of the United States, at least in Latin America. We're a stronghold of resistance for Latin America, uh, you know, alongside Cuba and Venezuela. I think that for Nicaragua to fall would be terrible for the rest of the region. I think that uh, we need more Nicaraguas, we need more Venezuela, mm -hmm. we need more Cubas. And I think that right now um, there is hope in Brazil, there's hope in Mexico. Um, there, there are uprisings happening against Macri in, in Argentina. Uh, there's uprisings in uh, support of Korea, who's in exile right now. Um, and so what we're seeing also alongside this, you know, um, very strong uh, move to overthrow the Sandinistas is, you know, the peoples of the Americas who are standing up and saying, you know, we're fed up with this. And we're not going to take it. I think it's going to take some time for the tide to turn. But I, I do see hope in the future. And, and I think that Nicaragua and Venezuela and, and Cuba are the forefront of a, of a movement and a shift towards the left for, for Latin America. And as painful as this is, I think Sandinistas at the national level have become stronger, much stronger. And I think that the left has become much, much stronger uh, throughout Latin America as well, because this blatant attack against our sovereignty and against our economy and against our, our revolution mm -hmm. has woken up a lot of people and has made people realize they need to to unite against U.S. intervention. And I and I'm hopeful about the future. Absolutely. It does. It does seem like the Trump administration has really set its sights back on Latin America. Um, and, you know, to your point, this economic and social model has been enormously successful um, especially since the U.S. was waging a full-blown war against the Nicaraguan people in terms of sanctions back in the 80s. So to pick itself up uh, after being relentlessly attacked um, economically by the U.S. And, and its allies is really something. Max, let's wrap it up by talking about um, the solution here and also the state of the opposition in Nicaragua, because everyone seems to think that the solution is for Ortega to hold early elections. I mean, even though he was reelected for another term very recently. So talk about the notion of Ortega as this dictator, even though, you know, he was elected, um, because even people like Noam Chomsky are calling for early elections. And also, what is the state of the opposition? On the call for early elections, and, you know, Camilo can feel free to chime in here, um, but, you know, I just don't know what sovereign country would consider this to be acceptable. And I found it extremely bizarre uh, for Noam Chomsky to legitimize this demand uh, from the opposition and I assume the OAS, um, which is completely intended to destabilize Nicaragua's political system and not give 
the government and the society as a, t- a chance to recover from this really traumatic uh, unrest, which left, which has really left the country polarized as it hasn't before. I mean, just on a social level, Nicaragua hasn't experienced this level of polarization since the 80s, and to some extent, it's even more uh, extreme because you actually have the violence move into core of cities like Managua, where it never took place in the 80s. Um, people are kind of pitted against each other, and it appears that the uh, OAS and you know the opposition's friends in Washington want to take advantage of the polarization uh, to divide the country even further. I don't see, however, how the opposition could win an election, considering they haven't agreed on any leadership and when I would go to opposition rallies, and by the way, these rallies proceeded freely and openly. Uh, police didn't interfere with them at all, and they're taking place all the time, and they're pretty small generally. I'd ask people and participants, who is the leader? Which leader would you get behind? Who are you for? And some would say, well, I'm a Ch- I'm a, you know, I support Chamorro. And some would say, well, we're not talking about a leadership, but as soon as we can get Danielle out of the country, then we'll agree on a junta and there'll be like a, you know, constitutional process. So they basically have, it's almost like they've received the same talking points that other participants in color revolutions receive, which is to not center around any clear leadership or offer a program or agenda. And that way they can remain unified against one figure that they've reduced an entire social movement to, uh, Daniel Ortega, demonize him, and rally, uh, you know, multinational support against that one demon, the one folk devil. Um, But, you know, at a certain point, you do have to come together and decide how you're going to approach elections once you lose. Uh, They lost on a demand for regime change. Now they're moving towards elections. I don't think those elections will be in 2019 as they wish. Um, I think they're going to have to follow a normal process. And that doesn't look good for the opposition. As in Venezuela, as in many other countries, they're completely fragmented. They're exhausted. I think a lot of Nicaraguans have seen the opposition for what it is, uh, which is that at every moment, at every key, at every key turning point during the unrest, they would turn towards the tranques, towards the violent roadblocks and the criminal elements as their ace card. And that destabilization that they caused is kind of like a ball and chain that they're going to drag into the elections. Um, I'd encourage everyone to watch one of the few interviews where a a leader of the opposition, um, I think it was uh, Juan Sebastián Chamorro, who helped kind of engineer the deadly unrest, uh, was confronted by a BBC reporter. Um, It was BBC Hard Talk, and the reporter challenged him on all of the points that we've been discussing, and Chamorro didn't have a good response to anything. He looked not only impotent, but he looked like a deer in the headlights. And this is a figure who has been kind of discussed as a potential candidate for the presidency against Ortega. So you just look at him as a leader of the opposition, and you have to kind of understand why they keep falling back into the violent dynamic, which we saw this weekend after a massive march of Sandinistas demanding justice for their dead, and then Sandinistas paraded around Managua and were attacked uh, by opposition elements 
there's video of a van that was uh, toppled and burned and uh, people being physically assaulted just because they had FSLN symbols on their cars from this weekend. Uh, you know, you really can understand the desperation of the opposition when you see activities like that taking place. So uh, I think that the biggest problem for the Sandinistas is, you know, who succeeds Daniel Ortega? Uh, mm-hmm. Because he has, he is getting up in the years. I would say that his uh, his wife Rosario Murillo um, is not as popular as he is. Many people loathe her for simply sexist reasons. Uh, but there, the opposition has crafted a narrative about him uh, establishing a dynasty because he appointed her as vice president, um, and that's another problem. So I think looking past the elections. Uh, the question is who can really lead this movement of two to 2.5 million people, which is one of the strongest and most influential uh, progressive worker movements. Camilo, anything to add to wrap it up? The Sandinista movement, um, you know, dates back to Sandino. Basically, this is a, a popular and an anti-imperialist movement with a lot of history, uh, with a lot of... Um, dedication and devotion with a lot of commitment from a lot of people and it's not going to die with with Ortega just like the Cuban revolution didn't die with Fidel and just like the Bolivarian revolution did not die with um, with Chavez I think that you know there's there's going to be Sandinismo for a long time I agree that we we don't know who that person will will be to lead the Sandinista movement and party but um you know, we are millions strong, and we'll we'll figure it out. Uh, it certainly will not be one of these oligarchs, like uh, Max mentioned, you know, the, the Chamorro family, who represent not only the oligarchy, but also political power. And, you know, also, you know, it's, it's an incredibly classist family, um, you know, politically always on the right. Uh, with the exception of the few who were part of the Sandinista movement, but uh, they they lack leadership. And not only Mm -hmm. do they lack leadership, but they're in contradiction in many ways. The students have been calling for a general strike. The COSEP, which is this very powerful business lobby, they didn't want to go on strike because it hurts their business. The civil society groups are, you know, they're they're trying to revoke the the, the ban on therapeutic abortion. The church is completely anti-abortion. Um, and, and, and just like that, there are like a lot of uh, contradictions in this movement. They don't really have a political platform. They don't have real reforms. They don't govern by consensus. They don't have any uh, proposals for how to help the Nicaraguan economy grow or how to get poor people out of poverty. Uh, they're desperate for power. They, they're desperate for leadership. They're desperate for unity. So whatever happens with Sandinista, with, uh, Sandinista Party, I think that we have plenty among ourselves, you know, plenty within our ranks who can take the reins of the movement and keep the revolution going. Not to say that we don't have real questions to answer, but I I, I am hopeful again that um, there will be Sandinismo for a long, long time in Nicaragua. And I just urge leftists here and journalists to, you know, instead of being on record to, to say how you would do things better or you know, being on record to say, I was there calling Ortega corrupt and criticizing the government. I mean, it's just really important for us to stand in solidarity 
with the revolutionaries there, with the Sandinista movement, and also just just uniformly against sanctions and against any sort of regime change interference in Nicaragua. And I don't understand why that seems to be so difficult for people. So thank you so much, both of you, for taking such an enormous part of your day to explain this complex issue and really relay all this incredible information for our audience. And just to wrap it up, um, just give a quick shout out of where people can follow you and also the best sources, again, for people to really be following on the ground what's going on there. Max, let's start with you. Well, um, at grayzoneproject.com, and we're covering a wide array of subjects that most media, including a lot of progressive media, doesn't want to touch. It's, it's mostly original journalism, and I'll be working also on a documentary with Thomas Hedges about the coup in Nicaragua and the forces behind it. Uh, we were filming the whole time we were down there. Um, you know, I'd encourage people to watch Camilo's lectures about Nicaragua and all of the history leading up to this moment, uh, you can just go on YouTube and search Camilo Mejia in Nicaragua and find a lot of uh, lectures that I found really informative um, from his talks around the country. Uh, hopefully I'll be doing some talks in D.C., um, but, you know, in the meantime, you know, you can follow me on Twitter. Just My name you probably already are following. If you're listening to this show, since we're, like, all, like, you know, incestuous here, <laughs> um, if you speak if you speak Spanish, there's a really good Nicaraguan uh, program called Red Revolucion, which constantly gets its Facebook page taken down. Uh, but these are young people and students who are breaking down uh, events from an anti-imperialist perspective. And um, Tortilla Consal, the Tortilla Consal Collective, um, which is at tortillaconsal.com is doing daily bulletins and politics that I think is really essential. That is the main online hub that I'd be following if you want to follow day-to-day in, in Nicaragua. And, you know, of course, uh, Media Roots is one of the very, very few shows and podcasts uh, that has been covering Latin America from an anti-imperialist perspective in English. Uh, but I also do a podcast with Ben Norton called Moderate Rebels. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Moderate Radio. I mean, I think we're the moderates in a sea of centrist extremists, but you know, people consider us to be. Uh, well, I don't know. They come up with all all sorts of insults for us, but we I think we have some really good guests, and we're going to have a show coming up soon with a Vietnam veteran discussing the real legacy of John McCain. So look out for that. Fantastic. And and Camila, what about you? Well, everything Max said, definitely great on project. I think Max's work has been really amazing in uncovering uh, the degree to which the U.S. has been involved in this coup attempt. Uh, I think also Telesur has done a lot of really good work, uh, very objective, very fair on Nicaragua. Common Dreams has also published a few really good articles, including one by Dan Kovalik, who traveled to Nicaragua with Max. Uh, Nika Notes as well would be another one. Uh, Barricada, which is the legendary Sandinista newspaper for people who speak Spanish. Um, you can you can find a lot of really good stuff in there. RT also has done some really good work, not only on Nicaragua, but on regime change. Uh, so people can follow that as well. And like Max said, you know, we're, we've been talking throughout the country, giving talks and interviews 
so people can follow me on Twitter or Facebook, and I'm constantly posting things there. What is your Twitter? Uh, C Mejia0875, I think it is. And, and Camila, why don't you send me uh, via email some of the lectures that you feel like explain more in depth about the history so I can go ahead and post those on the timeline as well. Um, thank you so much, both of you. You guys are awesome. I just really, really appreciate your work and insight on everything you do. And I encourage everyone to follow and support your work. Thanks again. Thank you.